was ages since I've been up here. It's been great to come back anyway. And so, yes, we're in the second week of our, um, our series of the four corners of the kingdom. And we're in um, the book of Micah today. So if you want to start turning there, we won't read just yet. And we're going to be looking at the first six verses. And we're looking at this, the, the, the significance of these places that we associate with, I guess, the nativity. And um, last week we looked at Nazareth. We know that Joseph was from Nazareth and the significance of that uh, place in the gospel and how that speaks to um, the history and even the significance of how God speaks into history, even at the advent. Today we'll be looking at Bethlehem, now obviously the most probably famous places within the nativity, um, and rightly so when we start to kind of explore this and explore this. So this, this, second, ser- this second part of the series is called The Kingdom Renewed, The Kingdom Renewed. So last week was The Kingdom Remade, and this time we... It's, the theme of the kingdom renewed. And I get a shorter title that hopefully might get us to grasp the theme of Bethlehem is do not despise the days of small beginnings. Do not despise the days of small beginnings. By way of introduction, let me, let me start off by saying this. Look, we've all probably tried um, to redeem a seemingly hopeless situation. All right, we've all probably been there, haven't we? Maybe it was a dinner you were cooking, just went all wrong, all pear-shaped, and you suddenly realize maybe a vital step, you know. You know, you know they say that cooking is a science as well, isn't it? If you don't quite get the science right, it won't quite work. And maybe you found yourself in one of those things where you thought that it was more of an art than a science, and suddenly became unstuck. Or maybe it was a DIY job, isn't it? Maybe you saw this thing and you said, nah, you got the quotes. And he said, no, I'm going to do it myself. And then all of a sudden, you're in that serious problem. And you can't quite figure out what you went wrong and how to fix it. Or maybe it was something even more serious, like a relationship. A hopeless situation, a relationship that you thought, well, I just don't see this being fixed. We may look back at all these particular situations and say, well, it's been actually quite of a mixed bag, Rich, to be honest with you. Some dinners I've saved, some dinners I've, <laughs> I've ordered in, <laughs> some DIY jobs, I've actually, yeah, I got there in the end. And then others, you went to the yellow pages or, or check a trade and you said, let me get the experts in. Or that uncle that always seems to know how to do everything. And maybe you've rescued that relationship as well. You know, and we've turned things around, but at the same time, some, you know, some things we don't rescue, though, though, isn't it? And sometimes even important things. As humans, we have come to a point where we also have to admit our limitations. There are things that we we look at that we know we can't fix them. 
but we would never suspect that God has such a situation. That God, in a sense, throws in the towel in certain circumstances and decides, that's it, I have to start again. Surely the God who creates from nothing can turn around the most impossible problems. For he gave a child, for example, to an elderly Sarah against the laws of biology. Sarah gives birth as a 90-something-year-old woman. He stopped the sun in the times of the Israelite conquest of Canaan um, when Joshua prayed against the laws of physics. And he turned water into wine at the feast of Cana, at the wedding of Cana, against the laws of chemistry. You know, when we look at a God who is not limited by the laws that govern our universe, sure, a God like that would not be subject to throwing in the towel like a mere mortal. As we look to the book of Micah, we will see that God does just that. He's looking to renew. He's looking to start again. And so let's turn with me to to Micah and explore the God who renews his kingdom rather than carries on. So now I'm reading from the ESV, but please follow with whatever translation you have. And he says this, Now muster your troops, O daughter daughter of troops, Sorry, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of they should shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian, and he and when he comes into our land and treads within our border. So this is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful, Father, for this time of the year where we can look at the Advent, dear Lord God, and again, you know, as as excited as we can be for all the festivities and and gathering together, dear Lord God, but there is also, we, we recognize as the church, Lord, there is great opportunity to reflect on the Advent itself. Why did Christ come? Why, uh, why born as a child? Why... Why in this particular way? Why in this particular place as we're looking at this year, dear Lord God? Why Bethlehem? And what's its significance, Lord? And as we look into these things, Lord, there's a great opportunity here for us to dig deep, 
into our faith, Lord, to, to find that, Lord God, by the time we hit um, our new year there, Lord God, we're already growing and we can already look and see there, Lord Father, the things that um, we have, we, we've come to understand and, and be able to appreciate, Lord. And hopefully this time, Lord God, will we'll, we'll not just be a time, Lord God, where we can join with our families, Lord God, and our friends, but, Lord God, a time there, Lord Father, where we can find a, a feast of, of, of being able to invest in our knowledge of you, Lord, and, and actually know you better through this experience of the Advent. So, Lord, bless us as we go through your word today. May it truly go through us, Lord, and bless us, dear Lord God, and become something productive, dear Lord God, that will glorify you. So have your way in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I want to present to you that in every way in which we see, the, in every place where we see Bethlehem, it has been a place of renewal. There's three key places, um, of which one obviously is in the book of Matthew and Luke. And there's one kind of smaller incidence where David kind of um, wants the waters from one of the wells in Bethlehem. But ultimately... There's three significant places, and I want to look at two of them, even before we kind of jump into our text and break them down, and show that there is that pattern of renewal within this place from the very beginning. And so whenever we meet in history, you know, so whenever we see this Bethlehem mentioned within the history of Israel, it's something about renew, being renewed. So it was a place of renewal for Naomi, wasn't it? When she had given up hope. For any, for, um, for any success in life. And she went back to Bethlehem in bitterness and was ready to be just be buried there. You know, so let me quote a, a couple of verses from there. So Ruth 1, 12, 13, she says, you know, her speaking to her daughter, uh, daughters-in-law, he said, turn back my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, so you see, I have hope. Even if I should have a husband this night you should, and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for you, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. You know, so we see Naomi, she's going back to Bethlehem, but she has no hope in going back there. She says, if I had a hope, and she also says, the Lord's hand has gone out against me. In fact, it will appear that Naomi's just going back to die. At least to be buried amongst my relatives. That's the very least I can have. It's more than my husband got, and it's more than my son's got. The very least I can, I can give myself is a burial in the place in which I was raised. So she's returning to Bethlehem. So she feels hopeless and she feels forsaken. We also meet this when she's met by her, um, her, her fellow townsmen in um, 22, um, Ruth 1, 20 to 22. They said, and she said to them, when they call her Naomi, do not call me Naomi. Now, obviously, the, 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 the thing here, if you don't understand Hebrew, is that Naomi means pleasant. So when she hears her name, she hears, pleasant, you're back. But she feels anything other than pleasant. 
Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi, or Pleasant, returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. I love that last verse. At the beginning of barley harvest. It's the writer's way of interjecting that little sign of hope. So for all this negativity, you see that she'd gone away from this place because it had no longer produced bread. The house of bread was no longer producing bread. And she comes back at the time of the barley harvest. It's like that little clue that we get. So if, you, you know, if you've ever read the life of Samson, we get that little hope from the narrator because it says that when Samson's eyes were gouged out and when he was now chained and was used to, um, pull, to, 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 to uh, grind the grain of the Philistines, the narrator inserts, but Samson's hair began to grow. It's that way of saying that all hope is not lost. So for all of of Naomi's hopelessness, the, the narrator of the story is trying to tell you, actually, Naomi, this is not going to be your end. This is going to be the place of your renewal. The barley is already growing. And your daughter-in-law will go out. And she will reap it. And she'll bring home her husband. And she'll renew you. And within a few years, you're going to be bouncing grandchildren on your knee. And if that wasn't, in, and if that wasn't enough, your lineage will be there in Messiah's lineage. Wow. The second place we see this is in the book of Samuel, isn't it? When Samuel saw no future for Israel under Saul... He was directed by God to go to Bethlehem to begin again by looking for a new king. 1 Samuel 16.1, it says this, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king amongst his sons. Samuel goes, but he still must be reminded by God that he is really beginning again. Samuel goes when he thinks that, you know, so often we go into these things where God has given us that hope again and thinking that he's going to do it the way that I suspect he's going to do it. And again, even Samuel is there beginning that God is not going to begin the way that he thinks. And he was looking for someone who was ready to be king that very day, I believe. Someone that was already looked the part. Someone who could be a real rival to Saul. But God will build up a new king in the boy, David. The diamond in the rough. We see that in 1 Samuel 16, 6-7. He says this. When they came to look, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God really is beginning again. 
He's not just finding a direct replacement for Saul, who stood ahead above everybody else. Someone was mature that was ready to kind of take the job right now. He was looking for something that was really going to begin again. Someone that would grow and be nurtured. From these two texts in which Bethlehem plays a major role as the setting, we find a reoccurring theme of this town being a place of not just renewal, but humble renewal. Humble renewal. No one's expecting much. And God even has to tell to Samuel to expect less than what he wants, but to see as he sees things, to see the future, to see a brighter future, even if he can't see it right then, but to see with the eyes of faith. That's what I mean by humble. We have to look down and think, hey, maybe God wants less of what I can bring to a situation and more of what he actually has to bring. As we come to our text in Micah, we see that God continues this theme of renewal by introducing Jesus as the most unlikely new installment in the Israel project. It is not by coincidence that both Ruth and David are part of the Messiah's lineage. So this family with the town of Bethlehem becomes a symbol of God's miraculous renewal for Naomi, the nation, and then the world. Naomi nation and then the world so each so each time one it's just the family of Naomi the second time it's the nation of Israel revived through David and the third time we visit Bethlehem it's for the benefit of the world the vision of God is getting bigger and bigger praise God let's have a look at the historical context of of Micah so let's unpack this. So Micah is writing at the time of the Assyrian invasion of northern Israel. And Judah, during the reigns of Hosea, the last king of Israel, the northern kingdom, and Hezekiah. The continual downward trajectory of the northern kingdom through one evil king after another has come to the point that they, he will no longer allow them to live in the land. Remember the land, they lived in the land by covenant. They had, they had, they had chased out and annihilated many of the Canaanites for the fact that the land God had said, I place my name, can only be inhabited by those who praise his name. And therefore, because they no longer praise his name and he's no longer held in high esteem, they have to go too. Judah also finds itself as a nation coming to an end, even though it has a mixture of good and bad kings, but not at the hands of the Assyrians. Their end will come 130 years later at the hands of the Babylonians, who are currently their allies against the Assyrians. This is important, I think, for us today. And I want to interject this because I think it's important. We see in 2 Kings um, 20, 12 to 21, this series of the Babylonians coming and, and um, uh, uh, you know, greeting Hezekiah as he is healed. And obviously he's chasing off the Assyrians. And, and, and he believes that the, the Babylonians are an ally because they have a common enemy in the Assyrians. As Christians, we've got to be careful. I've always tried to explore why is, why is Isaiah so going to be in his bonnet about 
him just being friendly to people who are, and you know, so often we think today there are friends of the church because we have a common enemy. And I tell you, they're tomorrow's enemies. Just because we share an enemy or, 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 or a common cause today, we need to remember that Hezekiah is actually is chastised for the fact that he makes an ally with somebody who will later come and take all those goods. You know, it's not enough the fact that we have a common enemy. It's got to be that we worship the same God for the same reasons. So in this sense, this is actually the beginning of the end because Micah actually lives in the southern kingdom. And so even though as he's looking at this is going to be the end of the northern kingdom, it's also the beginning of the end of Judah as well. And Isaiah, his contemporary, is saying exactly the same thing. This is the beginning of the end of Judah. 130 years later, and so often we, we you know, um, one of these phrases that I quite like is going through. It's like, again, the West finds itself like cut flowers at this present moment in time. It's cutting itself off of Christianity. It still survives. But it's at its end. It's got, the time is limited. You know, like when you see the cut flowers and it says these should last for, for about eight to ten weeks? That's like what Judah's living on. You're on borrowed time. And we look around and we think that everything is flourishing and everything is the same. The Assyrians have gone back. We're all right. Isaiah and Micah are saying, no, you're not all right. This is the beginning of the end. Even in the good reign of Hezekiah, the problems of Judah were being revealed in that their confidence was not holy in God. And we see that the same is also true of the northern Israelites. You know, 2 Kings 17 gives a breakdown. The prophet gives a breakdown of why the kingdom failed. And it lists its, its issues. So again, if you want to read that, I, I suggest you do. Though the southern kingdom had different kings and the advantage of the temple system, they still ended up in the same place. The point here is that the problem is not to be found in the method or the means, but starting from a dodgy foundation, not a good foundation. If God is going to correct the prop, his prop, this problem, it could not come from humanity, from a humanity that is already bent against his, whole, his authority. It will have to come from a source that is uncorrupted. It will have to be from the Godhead. So it's like looking from heaven and seeing that actually the problem with humanity is, is that every human being ultimately will be corrupted. We see that ultimately with David as well, don't we? As good as he has a heart for God and, and, and remains with that epitaph, even to um, the detriment of his, you know, his um, descendants after him, he still used his power for his own good. And his own benefit. So the problem is that the foundation of the kingdom was always dodgy. 
It will always be with people who ultimately won't have a heart for God. So this is, Micah is addressing that issue and bringing the fact that Bethlehem will now begin the beginning of what we could say a third renewal. A third beginning again. And this time God will not send a man, no Boaz, no David, but himself. I must do it. I must be the foundation. So let's go through the text. So the first, the first verse, the kings of Judah is taunted. He must you know, suffer the embarrassment of being, um, the stick smiting them is the, the embarrassment of being besieged. You know, one of the things we look at, you know, I guess t- today we, we see the problems of po- politicians and being besieged by various groups and no one being happy with you. You know, looking at a prime minister where you have problems from the left wing, you have problems from the right wing, and no one is happy. And that's kind of a being besieged. And in this day, actually being besieged was a, was a, was a smack in the face. How are you going to encourage your people? How are you going to regrow the economy when you can't send anybody out? No one can come to your aid. The judge of Israel is a reference to the fact that the king, in many ways, was an ultimate judge. So remember that the kingship, the monarchy, replaced the judges. And the kings remained, as it were, um, judges over Israel, almost like a supreme court in many, in many respects. We see this most clearly in Solomon, don't we? Who actually judges cases and brings difficult cases, and he then has to decide how to, to, to adjudicate them. And so the judge of Israel has been smote on the face because he's now been besieged and now they have to address that issue. So this nation that had come in and besieged other nations like Jericho, they are now being besieged and it's like a reversal of the Canaanite invasion. Those who used to besiege the people that were in rebellion are now being besieged by another foreign power to chase them out the land. So that's the embarrassment. That's the smite on the cheek. Again, remember, even to this day, that smacking a man in the Middle East, the back of your hand in particular, is an insult. So the king of Israel is insulted. The second verse, considering the embarrassment of Israel, the new foundation will now, so the big scene is that at this time, obviously Samaria and Jerusalem were the big towns, they were the the capitals. And now Micah takes his eyes from Samaria and he takes his eyes away from from Jerusalem and he says, God is now focused on a little town called Bethlehem. The answer to all these problems, the answer to the world's problems is going to come from Bethlehem. I guess today if you were looking for an equivalent illustration, uh, you know, some small town outside of London... The answer to the UK's problems will be somewhere other than where you think it would come from. Not from Birmingham, 
not from Manchester, not from York, not from Edinburgh, not from Cardiff, not from any of the major places where you say, well, maybe there's somebody there. He says, actually, it's going to be in Bethlehem. Stop looking to these big places. They have no answers. And again, it's that symbol of renewal, isn't it? God is starting again. So though Bethlehem was notable as the birthplace of David, it was nonetheless an insignificant place in the light of the current plight of the nation. The significance of going back to Bethlehem is that God will begin again to rebuild the failing nation. So that's what Micah's saying. You're all finished. This is done. God is going to begin again. And he's going right back to Bethlehem. Verse 3, Israel will be abandoned until the Messiah is born. And that's the clarity, isn't it? Until his child is born, you're abandoned. Nothing's going to happen. Nothing, you know, good things obviously happened. People still had children. People still got married, you know. Um, people still celebrated together. There were good days and there were bad days. But the significance of Israel will not be in God's eyes until this Messiah is born. All hope is now deferred to the future. And this is included with Judah. Again, reminder that, that Micah is writing from Judah. The return of the brothers also seems to allude about the impending exile of the northern, trip, um, the northern kingdom. So these guys were going to be deported by the Assyrians into the various parts of their empire. And he's already speaking about their return. Until that Messiah comes, these people will not be able to return. Now obviously we look and we've read the book of Nehemiah, haven't we, and Ezra. We know that the children of Israel do actually return. So what are they talking about? Well, returning to the true kingdom of God. The true place of God. Israel may exist as a nation, even to this very day, but it's actually under Jesus we have a new Israel. It's that Israel he's calling them to. The kingdom of will be reassembled there. And we see this all throughout the gospel, isn't it? The kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. It's only until then, that's where all the people will be reassembled. And not just obviously the Israelites, we ourselves are included in that kingdom. And we are part of that kingdom to this very day, aren't we? So this, was, this makes what we learned last week so important. As Jesus was, will be based in the area of the northern kingdom as opposed to Judah, isn't it? That the unity that the Messiah will bring, he will, again, you know, I look at it as like true leveling up, isn't it? The king that didn't, you know, it's, it's like moving your capital up into, up into uh, the midst of the north, moving it into Yorkshire. That's what Jesus living in Nazareth means. True leveling up. These guys never had a good king. I'm going to live amongst them. I'm going to fish with them. I'm going to hang out with them. And that was that drawing in that northern kingdom, wasn't it? 
Thank you, Brother B, Pastor B, for doing that last week. We'll see a little, you could read a little bit more about that in Ezekiel 37, 15 to 23 as well, if you want to do a little bit of extra studying on that. Verse 4, the great shepherd, again, that motif, isn't it, of the shepherd. Last year, we looked at the significance of all those roles, of all those people that came to visit, the wise, the, um, the king, the shepherd. And we looked at those roles of those people. And again, that shepherd role was one of those things. Again, it's that Middle Eastern term that every king in the Middle East would have, would have looked at himself as being a shepherd. Even though the profession was despised, it was this whole idea that I am for the people. I'm your king because I care about you. I'm the shepherd of this nation and I look after the sheep. And that was that, that, that great um, epitaph that every king would have looked to be said, I'm a, I'm a shepherd, I'm a, I'm a considerate of all my people. Again, John 10, isn't it? It talks about Jesus being the great shepherd, isn't it? And the great shepherd of the sheep. In fact, he is doing that in response to what we get in Ezekiel about the bad shepherds who didn't shepherd the flock. For all the, for all the talk of being shepherds, more often they were just eating the sheep beating the sheep. So Jesus comes to address that issue. Again, and also, you know, back in third and free about, again, that, that, that ancient one, Micah is talking about the origin of this new king will not be from the origins of, 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 of humanity. He's an ancient one from of old. And that's not to say that Jesus is old. It's just, just old. Obviously, it's a way of talking about someone who is beyond time. The answer to our prayers and, 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 and God's renewal will come from somewhere very different. He will come from heaven itself. Then we look at the last two verses, five and six. The security of the new nation. So remember that this speaks into the time and we need to understand this when we look at prophecies. This speaks to the time. How is this going to comfort somebody who is looking at an impending Assyrian invasion? It's going to come south and eventually Hezekiah will have to be praying hard that some God answers and he does eventually answer the prayer. But when you're talking to a people, how are you going to give them confidence? And he speaks about this new Messiah when he comes will bring the kind of security that they need. So even though this kingdom is finished, the new, when the Messiah comes, our security issues are, are, are going to be, are gonna be secu- they're going to be good. They're blessed. So the mention of the Assyrians here should not be taken literally. Because obviously, when we t- come to the time of Jesus, the Assyrians are not a major power. They're not a major power anymore. It's talking about the whole idea of security. Anybody like that empire will not be able to threaten this new kingdom that Jesus is building. Now, if we want to understand this, unpack this even more, Daniel 2 speaks to this, doesn't it? About the whole idea of the kingdom of God, that this new kingdom comes, the stone that comes and smites the feet of this statue, grinds it to powder, that 
all empires will ultimately collapse. And the only empire that will stand will be the mountain of God. It's that picture of Zion, of God's people now formed around the new Messiah, the mountain that grows. And so that's important for us, isn't it? As we look around our time, and it, it speaks to us, it says, the empires around the world, the empire of USA, the empire of, of China, the powers of Iran and the powers of, of, of Russia and, and any other seemingly um, militant power that wants to, as it were, override the gospel vision. There's no threat to the kingdom of God. Paul knew this even at the time of the Romans. So did the rest of the disciples. And so we should know it now that we would outlast all of these empires. And we are secure in Christ. And remember, it doesn't mean that we do not die. It means that, as Jesus said, we fear those who can condemn us to, to basically to hell more than those who can just kill the body. We fear him who can bless our lives. Or damn them. How do we apply this? Well, starting afresh need not be something that wounds our pride. Starting anew. In the wake of the collapse of Israel, God sends a message of hope via the prophets that, is, that all is not lost. So Micah is bringing hope. He's telling you, this nation is, we're done. We're finished. And maybe for many people would have looked and reflected on Micah's day, especially in Judah, for the next 130 years and said, what was that guy on about? We're still here. But you're done. He will begin again. That is, God will begin again and he will put himself at the heart of this new kingdom. I must build upon me and not upon men. I think this is important because we, we shouldn't just think about a tame nativity and create this sentimental picture of families coming together for Christmas, as good as that can be. I think the advent represents so much more. Amidst the failures of all the empires and the kingdoms of the earth, of which Israel is only one, the Christ comes to bring peace. He's the stone, as I already said in Daniel 2, that will come and bring an end to all rival powers. The stone will grow into a mountain that will fill the earth. And likewise, Christ's coming marks the end of history and the beginning of a new one. For this reason, the birth of Christ has marked the beginning of the end times. We are in the end times. And we have been for 2,000 years. Again, as I, you know, going back to our Revelation series, the end times is not the last seven years of history as you so often have been taught. The apostles knew this and taught it that Jesus coming was the end times, was the beginning of the end times. He is the end of history. 
The failure of leaders to keep God at the center has resulted in the advent. And this was obviously even amongst the good kings like David, as I already said, and even Hezekiah, who for, for most parts was actually a good king. Where Christ now places himself at the center, this should now cause us to reflect upon whether we have kept God at the center of our life. Maybe you are stuck in a situation that is constantly failing, but you are unwilling to change anything because it will mean admitting defeat. Bethlehem reminds us that beginning again may actually be the only answer. So what will this look like for you? If you've not given your life to Christ, it will mean starting with that, renewing your life in him. Jesus doesn't offer makeovers contrary to popular opinion where he just wants to kind of change you on the outside. She wants to give you a pizzazz and gives you a new energy in which you can kind of go out there and demand a raise and, you know, um, attract other people's attention and you can start winning people and influencing them. <laughs> He's offering you a new life, his life. That will require you to be born again. This is an image I can relate, actually, to the nativity, isn't it? The boy born in a manger will look like that, beginning again in a child. And it will look like that for you, being born again, but not physically. Being born again is about being a new spirit-filled being. God being born alive in you and bringing you to again, into a new life, his life. It's humbling because it will mean leaving behind not just the worst aspects of yourself, but even the ones you feel proud of. The parts of you that have not been conformed to the will of God. This is important because we are often happy to give God our failures, but not our seeming successes. The danger of this is that we treat God as a garbage removal person. You know, all the things that our, you know, we all come to God at the point of some kind of crisis in our lives. And then when we think about what it means to come to Christ, this picture is that, you know, for us it's on a Wednesday, whatever day it is for you, we, we, all the things we don't want in our house anymore, we just leave it out there for, for God to come and pick up, to the garbage men to come and pick up. We can treat God like that too. Here's a bunch of stuff that I no longer want in my life anymore. Just take it away from me. And there are things that we still feel valuable to us, but as far as God is concerned, actually, I need that too. God is not just there to take the things that we feel are pointless, but even those things that we still hold dear that actually hold you back. We are invited to enter the kingdom of God as a child, which at the very least implies the openness to learn from the beginning again. And there's that picture of renewal, isn't it? Childlikeness is a reflection of being able to learn again. Matthew 18, 1 to 4 says this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? 
And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's that picture of renewal again, isn't it? You need to begin again. You need to start relearning, gaining a, a truly Christian worldview. For those of us who are believers, it may look like starting in some, you know, starting again in some areas of our lives. For us who have already given our lives to Christ, again, it's now maybe focusing on areas of your life you have not submitted to Him. Maybe it's your career. We are considering starting over. Thinking of January, maybe it's that new diet and lifestyle. Or perhaps starting again in a relationship where Christ has not been placed at the center. As I alluded to at the beginning with the days of small beginnings, Zechariah 4, 8 to 10, it says this, The word of the Lord came to me saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid, on the, laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. You shall rejoice one day if you've begun again. There is a humbling in starting all over again. But it's wiser than trying to keep something alive that God cannot or will not revive. As Naomi returned to Bethlehem, she will discover that God will renew her bitterness into joy. Samuel will discover a new hope for the nation in a king who has a heart for God. As Joseph and Mary return to Bethlehem, they will discover the Lord will save the people of the world through his son. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we think what it means to be a part of a kingdom beginning again. And beginning again, there, Lord God, can, you know, there are times, Lord God, where it's, it's such an attractive thing, there, Lord God, and we're happy to do so. But, Lord, where our pride has been invested, Lord God, and no doubt, Lord, all the effort, as we think about, you know, Micah and the time in which he was said, all that had gone into to, um, making and developing um, Israel as a nation, all the work that was done militarily, economically, and politically, dear Lord God, and, you know, to seemingly throw all that away. You know, why, why not just rebuild, you know, why not just, you know, you know, change the hearts of the leaders, Lord God? And maybe we're, we're looking at that in our own political situation and landscape. And, you know, maybe we can revive this, dear Lord God. But yet, even now, you're saying all this politics, all this economy, all this architecture, all this that we've been so heavily invested on must make way for the kingdom of heaven. Only what is, you know, only that which is invested in Christ will last. Nothing else will last. It will all go and has to go. 
For this kingdom there, Lord God, is being renewed as we see today. And Bethlehem is that symbol of renewal, that beginning again from a, a humble beginning and literally starting from scratch. And so it is there, Lord God. Maybe we are on that path today where we are seemingly asking you to revive things, dear Lord God, that you want us to say, start again, put me at the center. Maybe there's someone here, dear Lord God, or someone listening, Lord, or, or watching, and again, they need to renew their lives in you. They need to literally start again and be born again. And you call, and you, maybe you're calling them again, Lord God, this Christmas to consider the advent with more serious eyes than they've ever had before. Lord, we commit them to you. May they make that step and be renewed in you. And that way they're following the real spirit of Christmas, dear Lord God, of what it means to go back to Bethlehem and see the child in the manger. Lord, let us, again, as believers who are a little bit further down the road to realize that, God, that, that call to renewal is something that, Lord, we face every day of making sure, dear Lord God, that we are being made new, Lord, giving things to you, dear Lord God, that you need to be at the center of. Lord, help us to make that commitment to you. So, Lord, we thank you for this time, this, this Advent season, dear Lord God, and thank you for your kingdom being remade and your kingdom being now renewed. In Jesus' name, amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.